Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Sanyin Podcast. On this special episode, we're going to talk about the nation of China. In almost every discussion that affects the world, China is mentioned from trade to education to science and technology to marine from science and technology to the climate change to health. Basically, everything around our world rotates around China. China is currently the second largest economy in the world and also is the factory of the world. And the fact that we at the Sanyin Podcast are currently based in China, why not have an episode focused on China's role into the world? Ladies and gentlemen, I'm joined by no other than Valerie Ma on this special episode on China. Valerie Ma. Valerie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, JP. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm honored to be on the Sanyin Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Um, So, Valerie, um, I had shared your bio, but... um. We just wanted to hear it from you. How would you describe yourself? Who is Valerie? Sure. Um, I guess I can start from the beginning. Uh, I was born in Hong Kong, but I spent my elementary school years in Beijing, where I saw the Olympics in 2008, which is very exciting. Uh, and then I moved back to Hong Kong, actually, for middle school. And then high school and college, I spent in the United States. So I've been kind of jumping around all my life. And then I returned to Beijing after I graduated to work for a little over a year. Uh, in time for the Winter Olympics in 2022. So that was also very exciting. And then now I'm back in Hong Kong with my family and I work at an investment firm. Um, and so just a quick disclaimer, everything I speak about today just represents my own opinion. Um, but yeah, I would definitely describe myself as a forever learner. I graduated from Zhoushan University School of Foreign Service in uh, 2021 during the height of the pandemic. I uh, majored in international politics um, but actually now I work at an investment firm. So I think there's, for me, I love learning. I love learning new languages, learning new things, learning about different industries. And so um, I think there's always room for improvement and room to grow as a person. Wow, that's nice. That's nice to know. Um, so basically, whenever Beijing is hosting Olympics, you're always there, if I'm yes. to say. <laughs> yeah, so whenever they're hosting the next one, I guess I'm, I'm back in Beijing. That's where you'll find me. <laughs> is it planned or is it coincidence? I think it's just a pure coincidence. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, of course, they announced the location of the Winter Olympics years in advance, but I did not really plan that part out. Okay. Um. So, Valerie, um, we're both in China, basically. And um, over the past 40 years, since the opening up of China, China has developed economically to become, I think, the second largest economy behind the U.S. And it has great, gained so much economic power over the years. So in your point of view, um, what can the world learn from China's economic growth? And how, and how can this benefit the wider global economy? Yeah, I think that's a really timely question, too. Um, before I begin, I'll tell a quick story, too, about life in Beijing um, and how I see personally economics, uh, China's economic growth. Um, when I lived back in Beijing between 2003 to 2009-ish, I remember living, um, so I lived in Shenyi, which is by the old airport, and I remember passing by farmers who would dry their corn on the side of the street on their way to school. And if you wanted to enter into the city, uh, the central business district, for example, you can only go by driving. And so in 2019, when I was back in Beijing for 
an internship for the summer, um, I noticed that the subway system had already extended into the Shinji area where I used to live. And there were new malls, housing complexes there. Um, and even that old airport is kind of outdated now. There's that new airport in Beijing, that's an airport. And so just for me personally, seeing that economic growth was really amazing. And that was what prompted me to apply for jobs in China after graduation. And so I can only imagine for um, some other outsiders seeing China's economic growth, that can be a very, um, something that they want to strive towards and something that they want to learn from. And so what lessons can the world learn from China's economic growth? Uh, I think there are many, but I'll take it from the angle of uh, special economic zones, for example. So in China, these areas, um, there's usually it's usually an industrial park or a certain area, a geographical geographically marked area that are granted more free market oriented policies, favorable favorable tax conditions, um, infrastructure aid and exports, etc. Uh, the most successful one being Shenzhen, of course. And so uh, other developing countries, for example, are looking towards China and the success of their use of special economic zones and wondering how they can apply it to their own countries. And so, of course, this isn't a one-stop solution, and it's probably only a, potentially a factor or something to kickstart economic growth. But um, the reason I speak on this topic is because in college, I'd written a paper on um, the evaluating the success of special economic zones in Rwanda and Ethiopia. Uh, but I, of course, am by no means a African specialist uh, or expert, but my argument was that it was relatively relatively successful in job creation in both Rwanda and Ethiopia, but you know whether or not there's been successful knowledge transfer or development of a local supply chain is a different question. And I think it's certainly a room for improvement because you know if companies are just importing raw materials to be processed at these special economic zones, then you're not really uh, taking advantage or helping the local economy develop its talent pool or its supply chain, and you're just really taking advantage of the labor. And so I think recently I was looking at the news and uh, the Kigali Special Economic Zone is supposed to be uh, doubled in size. And so I think each country, you know, that does use special economic zones, you know, they might see success in some areas, but I think there's still lots of areas for improvement. And that really goes to the point about, well, were there certain things about China that was unique and can't necessarily be replicated in every country around the world? Uh, and the first I would say is population. You know, China is the world's, the world's uh, second largest economy for a reason because it has that 1.4 billion person market to take advantage of. I mean, if I got everyone in China to just give me a dollar overnight, I would be a billionaire. And if you apply that to selling a daily service, a daily necessity, um, you can only imagine how fast a company might be able to grow and not just them, but their entire supply chain upstream and downstream grows alongside with them. And so can this be replicated elsewhere? Well, I mean, a lot of people are looking towards India right now, right? Because they also have a population of over a billion. So a lot of companies, investment groups are all opening offices there. But if you're looking at, you know, a, a singular Southeast Asian country, um, like Indonesia, the Philippines, they just don't have that population. But um, some people say, oh, if, you know, Southeast Asia works together as a block and creates a kind of trade zone, a regional trade zone. Um, and the same can be said for Africa, you know, collectively, then you might be able to take advantage of this population factor. And then also China, um, there's 
lots of natural resources come into play, whether you have the ability to grow your own food to feed your population, uh, specifically to feed your working population. Um, and also, you know, China's growth came at a really opportune time as the world was in urgent need of general industrial products. Um, and so that's why all these different factors, they come together um, at just the right moment for China to develop and become the world's factory. And so if you're Rwanda, or Ethiopia, or any other country considering use of special economic zones and applying the Chinese economic growth model, you know, you might be competing in a more competitive trade environment now, especially with the rise of uh, other regions like Southeast Asia. Um, and so it really goes down to whether or not each country can take the best parts of the China model and apply that to their own local situation. Um, and so that really empowers, I think, the local governments to really have agency in adapting in their collaborations with either the Chinese government or any Chinese business people, um, and really kind of uh, negotiate their interests and uh, make it so that this model can be something that works best for them. Okay. Um, so with this economic growth over the years, um, how does how does it translate to the ordinary Chinese? How, how, how are they faring? Yeah, I think this really depends on uh, what age group you're a part of. Um, you know, for the older generation uh, who grew up in the 60s, 70s, who went through kind of the hard times of Chinese history and the Cultural Revolution, for example, you know, the China that they see today is such a stark difference. Um, they have greater opportunities, a better standard of living, um, new developments in technology, uh, consumer and healthcare. You know, Ch and China nowadays is pushing innovation to the point where even places like Hong Kong are a bit behind, you know, on payment systems, for example. You know, I still have to carry cash around in Hong Kong, which is really annoying because, you know, in Beijing, I just take my phone around everywhere, right? Um, and so for them, I think for that generation, that economic growth is something that's really to be proud of. Um, they helped contribute to it certainly and it's that china of today is so much more different from the china of 30 to 40 years ago uh, and then you get to the generation that kind of grew up or are born in the 80s and 90s um, this is you know where we get terms like uh, the rich second generation the four that of the of china right the kind of generation that grew up in this better living standard in this growing china with high tech and lots of new Chinese domestic brands. Um, and so for them, life is good. Economic growth is great um, because they get to live in this kind of, uh, this kind of lifestyle. Um, and they're also uh, the ones that are reaching out, reaching out into the world. And you know, they're more exposed to what's going on uh, overseas. And you know, you're not just looking at what's going on in China on the news, you're learning about the culture uh, overseas. And I think that will also breed a new form of uh, diplomacy in a way, and a lot of just more people-to-people -people connection. And so, I mean, that's that's all the positive aspects of economic growth, right? And but at the same time, we see some of the negative aspects of economic growth, and that affects on the social aspects of Chinese life. Um, you know, we see nowadays a lot of headlines and statistics on why young Chinese people aren't getting married or aren't having kids. I think there was a a joke or a quote that was like, the best form of birth control is economic growth. Because, you know, as you're achieving a better living standard and having more opportunities to pursue a job that you want, 
instead of a job that you need to survive. Um, all of a sudden, you know, to put it quite bluntly, you're a bit more selfish. And so you want to do things that you want to do, basically. So that's one aspect of it. And then the other aspect is uh, there's also increased competition um, with economic growth. And, you know, in China, there's that term, involution, right? So this is the idea that it's, I would define it as a necessary competition because you have a finite pool of resources, yet a growing population who needs to use them. Um, this applies, for example, there's a limited number of job spots available, a limited number of university spots available, but then there's more and more people competing for that limited number of spots. And so it becomes this internal domestic competition with each other um, to see who can, for example, stay at the, at the office the latest, even though you really have no, no work to do or see who can kind of appease the boss the most so that they can get that promotion. And so, you know, instead of all of us working together to create new business opportunities, to to um, help develop the Chinese economy together, we're all just competing against each other. To the point where, for example, nowadays in China, you need a master's degree to get an entry-level job, which is, you know, probably unheard of, you know, 30, 30 to 40 years ago. And so you wonder why people don't want to have kids or don't want to get married. It's just that, you know, economically, it's an extra burden and you're already dealing with all the stress of having to compete with your next door neighbor. You know, don't even talk about having to raise a kid and deal with all the costs of that. I mean, if you want to have kids, I, I support that 100%. Um, kids are great. But, you know, at the same time, it is an economic decision to make as well. Okay. Uh, yes, if that's something about the population, um, I realized that China doesn't have um, this open door immigration system that probably other Western countries have. Um, so how best can they address the population decline in your in your mind? Mm, I think for China, they do have a bit of a lag time compared to other countries. Uh, for example, South Korea and Japan, right? Japan, I think their population decline is coming at a much faster rate than China is, or at least this is what I get from kind of re reading the headlines. I don't know the specific statistics, but I mean, Japan is uh, one of the kind of, uh, how should I say this? The, so one of the issues with Japan is that um, just like China, they don't have this open door immigration policy, right? They're, they're actually ranked quite low in terms of uh, the freedom of uh, immigration and both from a, a legal side and also from a cultural aspect, I think if you were to immigrate to Japan, you really have to have a deep understanding of its culture and its language. And so I think that's another barrier to why uh, not many people immigrate to Japan. Um, but I think Japan is starting to consider opening up their immigration policies just to help solve this issue, right? So one aspect is immigration and the other aspect is Japan's really trying to develop its technology. Um, if you can't have a human worker in doing this kind of manufacturing job, well, is there a robot that can do it instead? And so I think while that's going on in Japan, China is definitely you know, keeping up with this kind of development and seeing how other countries are reacting. And so that's why in China, the AI and also uh, robotics industry um, has been developing at such a fast pace. And there's a lot of room for opportunity there. Um, 
And that's probably because, you know, at the one hand, you know, it will help business efficiency, but at the other, on the other hand, it might also help alleviate the issues with this population. Um, and we can see recently too, from a government perspective, they're trying to uh, encourage young Chinese people to have more kids. They're, they've, they've basically gotten rid of the one child policy. Now you can have up to three kids. Um, you know, I think some countries are, or not some countries, some provinces are even uh, subsidizing aspects of uh, education, for example, or giving more maternity leave. And so this, all of those kind of policies right now are happening at a very local level. And so uh, a certain town or a province might be doing something that other provinces aren't doing. And so there hasn't been just this national uh, set policy push to um, subsidize education, for example. Um, so I think China is definitely learning from other countries, um, definitely monitoring what's going on um, as because this problem is definitely uh, affecting countries around the world, like not just China. And so um, we'll see. Okay, um, let's go to another topic. Um, let's talk about COVID, COVID and China. <laughs> it seems that yeah. China and COVID are so intertwined from the origins to the handling of the pandemic, to the vaccination, to the protests and everything. Um, so let me ask, for someone who, let's say, has been in China through the COVID and has also been abroad and seen how China has been portrayed through the lenses of the media, um, what would you say is your insight on China and COVID? Yeah, definitely. If you were living in China anytime between 2020 and 2023, basically. This is something that has affected absolutely everyone. Um, and at the beginning, I really did think that the overall policy was about protecting the people. And this is the core value of the CCP, right? The party and the country puts the safety and well-being of its people first. You know, it's the People's Republic of China. And I think at, at the beginning, it was quite successful um, despite the kind of harsh methods uh, to achieve that goal. Um, and part of the reason why I applied to jobs in China as well was since I graduated at the peak of the pandemic, China really was the safest place on the planet. Um, the other option, of course, was to book a ticket to the moon and just leave the planet to avoid COVID. Um, but, you know, as time went on, I personally felt that the whole situation kind of became this runaway train with no driver. And it really speaks to the way policy is enacted and executed in mainland China. You know, how do you organize? and govern and protect the country of over 1 billion people. Um, for me, I kind of view that through the lens of how a multinational company might operate. Um, you know, you always have talk of a common company culture led by CEO who sets out major goals, but it's really up to your supervisors, you know, the managers to execute this vision. And in some way, China is the same way, um, even though it might not be a one-to-one -one metaphor. Um, you have this overall goal, right? So we have to achieve zero COVID. And brought together by a common culture, teaching, values, et cetera, um, this policy is executed by provincial officials, then by city, and all the way down to your neighborhood community associations, your shuqi. And so my personal experience in Beijing is that the people chasing after you if you get COVID or you're close contact, or in my case, I happened to go to a mall the same day as a uh, positive case. And so I got chased down. Um, and the, these people that you're dealing with is not some faceless official sitting far away 
watching your every move from a dark room with a computer, you know, with all the data, like the, in the hacker mode. Um, it's really your local police station, your local health bureau, your local community association, who, by the way, I think um, from an outsider's perspective, they're in the, this community association is basically a bunch of volunteers, right? A bunch of, uh, I wouldn't say like old ladies, but they're kind of spending their time and helping aid the community efforts to organize uh, events um, and also got tasked with the contact tracing aspect uh, during COVID. Um, and so they're just trying to get through their day. They're trying to get through their list of people to call and follow up about in terms of, you know, where they've been, where they're, where they're planning to go. Um, and so all in all, each time you add a layer of complexity in this policy execution, right, from the provincial level to the towns, to your local community, you add this opportunity for misunderstanding of policy, for misinterpretation, for people to take advantage of these information gaps or opportunity gaps until what actually happens um, in the execution is maybe different from what was originally intended on a national scale. Uh, I remember if you tried to travel across provinces, you know, you had to fill out this form for a health code in Beijing, which is different from the health code in Shanghai, which is different from the one in Shenzhen. And so it's, you know, the data is shared, but the way each province operates is very different and they have their own separate systems and the way they kind of interact with the local people. And so, you know, do I think the original policy had good intentions. Yeah, but you know, did the train go off the rails at some point because the execution of policy became too fragmented or too complicated? I think anyone who lives in China, especially during 2022, um, wouldn't know the answer to that question. Uh, and so I think that's the kind of internal perspective of what was going on in China during COVID, right? We all had the lockdowns. Um, I certainly, had a lot of stress and fear um, from living in that kind of environment. So I did end up move back, moving back to Hong Kong. Um, that was one of the factors I considered. Um, and a lot of people left Shanghai as well. Uh, a lot of people left Beijing. And because, you know, it did, COVID in China really did expose this ugly side of society that, you know, for example, if you're a positive case that uh, caused your whole building to, to go under lockdown, um, some people really got bullied because of that in the kind of building chats or whatever. And so that really revealed this ugly side of Chinese society. Um, but at the same time, you know, we also had a lot of people helping each other out, um, a lot of uh, shared experiences that really brought communities together. And so, um, you know, there's always two sides to every story. Um, and I think that the same can be said for the way the international community reacted to COVID in China. I think, um, you know, I was sad that I couldn't go back to campus in the United States uh, for my final year of graduate, uh, right before I graduated university. But at the same time, you know, with the rise of anti-Asian hate there um, and the way people reacted to Asian people wearing masks abroad, for example, at the early um, stages of the pandemic, I think that also revealed a very ugly side of the international community. You know, whether or not the virus came 
intentionally or it was an accident you know it's that that all of that's just political kind of fluff and story and fear-mongering in a way um the fact that it was that you know the pandemic spread um and the way people reacted i think was quite disappointing and um you know but at the same time there there was also uh, a lot of uh help uh that we gave each other um just from a very humane level. And so, I mean, I'm I'm sure everyone in China and me as well, I'm happy to put this in the past. Uh, I just visited Shenzhen recently from Hong Kong, um, finally without any COVID testing, no more scanning any codes. And so there was some semblance of returning to a life before COVID, which I'm very excited about. And uh, I think it gives me a lot more hope um, and, and I'm hoping to visit China more often too now. Okay, um, so how would, what in your way would be COVID's legacy in China? Well, I think um, hmm, that's a good question because, you know, this is definitely a huge challenge, not only to Chinese society, but to the economy as well. And so when you have uh, all this growth, year-on-year growth, um, that's so tied to the kind of trust in the government, then all of a sudden there's this huge shock to that. Um, how do we react as a society? Can we can we recover from it? And, um, you know, I mean, I, I would say I'm a pretty hopeful person. So I think that, yes, we can kind of remember COVID as this really tough time that we all came together to uh, get over. But I think at the same time, there is this kind of uh, traumatic experience that a lot of people went through uh, living through COVID in China. And so um, I think everyone's glad that it's over. Um, hopefully they can just forget about it. But um, yeah, I think it's something that will be written about in the history books for sure. Um, but and then it becomes a question of how it's going to be remembered. Hey, um, let me go to another uh, another topic that is more in the news when it comes to China, and that's the tensions between China and the U.S. Um, likely I'm talking to someone who has been both. You've been both in the U.S. and you and in China. Um, uh, so the first question I'd ask about this topic: Are we entering an era of a new Cold War between Washington and Beijing? Mm, that's like the 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 buzzword <laughs> in the news in the past <laughs> couple of months the new cold war um let me start by this uh in my opinion it is every government's imperative to prepare for a potential war right why is semiconductors such a sensitive industry uh nowadays also related to us china um the example i'll give is that actually japan in the 1980s was a huge threat to the United States when it comes to computers. Um, there was this huge scandal that happened between Hitachi and IBM that Hitachi was stealing computers and stealing their technology from IBM. And the government and the FBI became involved. And why were, well, why was the US government so scared and so nervous about this whole situation? And it was because um, computers are related to the military. And so uh, at the end of the day, there's always this uh, threat of military conflicts that governments have to prepare for. Um, and so between who is the question is, uh, so okay, the first question is, well then the for military conflict, who is it between? 
um, there's kind of two aspects that this involves. So the first is the stability and stability paradox, right? So US and China both have nuclear weapons. And so, you know, according to the kind of principles of nuclear deterrence, they might not go to war with each other. And instead they might resort to lower level, uh, lower level forms of uh, military conflict. And so the, related to that is then the rise of proxy warfare. And so you're fighting wars in um, or supporting certain sides in other countries, but you're not actually fighting against each other directly. And so with that in mind, um, you know, as much as I don't want to admit that we are heading in that direction, I would say that the general direction of um, human history is that we do tend to go towards war. And so can we peacefully resolve uh U.S.-China relations. Um, I don't think so. I don't think that's actually a very realistic goal to, to, you know, kind of reach the point where the U.S. and China can hold hands and roast marshmallows by the fire and all is well, right? What we can do is, can we peacefully navigate each crisis and each flashpoint that happens? Um, and so with this new Cold War kind of uh, terminology, um, you know, in a way, I do see the long-term threat of military conflict always being there. Um, but, you know, an another aspect is that it's possible that we weren't heading down this direction and we didn't have to, but we might have pushed ourselves into this corner um, because of the way the media cycles work, um, the way that each country might have to represent their own interests. And so it's they're politically incentivized to kind of spur on this fear-mongering of both sides, or whether you know it's from the U.S. officials trying to get reelected and using China fearmongering as their ticket to the winning the next election cycle, or from China um, kind of fearmongering about the United States so that they can kind of move up the ranks. Um, on that aspect, maybe we really did push ourselves to this point of new Cold War, but at the same time, this Cold War mentality comes from uh, history, right? This the term the original Cold War was between the Soviet Union and the United States. But I think I think we can all agree that China is not even, China is not the Soviet Union. Uh, China is more economically dependent on the U.S. and vice versa. They're more economically intertwined, and so there is incentive to maintain a really um, reasonable U.S.-China relationship. And so um, to me, like using terminology such as new Cold War is just marketing in a way. Uh, it's just political fluff. Um, at the end of the day, you know, I understand why the governments on both sides are so concerned about certain industries, you know, the fear of war. Um, but at the same time, I think we can all be a little bit more hopeful, especially in the younger generation um, that have experienced uh, life in both countries um, that they can really bring forth uh, a, a more peaceful uh, relationship between the U.S. and China and how they resolve conflicts um, that come up. There, there are major issues of contention among the U.S. and China. One is Taiwan, the South China Sea, and then um, now, now is a lot of spying, like the spy balloon. Um and the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims in Xinjiang. Um, 
do you think the US and China can find a common ground in those areas of contention? Yeah, I think, um, you know, there are certain red lines that can't be crossed right, from the US side and from the Chinese side. You know, for example, with China, this is uh, the one China policy when it comes to Taiwan. Um, and so using that principle, for example, that can be applied to the way the US and China uh, deal with issues um, that are in contention. Uh, so, you know, in the first scenario where there's an issue where there isn't common ground, then how can you at least manage um, and uh, kind of steer confrontation into a more manageable direction? Um, and that is through the kind of concept of first principles. Um, this is what we talked about in our competition, right? Um, if you kind of respect each other's boundaries, then maybe there is room for negotiation. But at the same time, the US and China also have a lot of common interests when it comes to uh, environmental issues, climate change, um, and health issues. I mean, with, uh, I mean, COVID was definitely a complicated time in the world of healthcare, but there are a lot of areas in which um, the U.S. and China can work together for the benefit of each other uh, to develop certain vaccines, cancer-related technologies. There is a lot of areas for cooperation there. And so, you know, what ends up happening is that you kind of have this really fragmented relationship where, oh, but in certain areas, uh, U.S. and China are these enemies, and then in certain areas, they're really good friends, and how do you you kind of reconcile those two aspects in this overall evaluation of U.S.-China relations. I think the expectation is that, well, in some ways you really can't, right? There are going to be, like, it, I mean, it is, at the end of the day, it is kind of an evaluation of people-to-people -people relations, right? I'm sure we all have friends that we love to hang out with, but sometimes they always show up late or they, you know, they never reply to your messages. It's a love-hate kind of relationship. And so, but at the end of the day, you're, you still end up being friends with them because uh, for various reasons. And so I think US-China is the same way. There are for sure going to be issues that are uh, where, there, there, there are going to be issues where the US and China don't agree with each other. Um, but at the same time, there are issues that are. And so I think the expectation should be that uh, you can't reconcile both things and that's that's to be expected you know we can't all hold hands and also punch each other at the same time okay um the next question will be china and the developing world um africa for my come from china is really really present uh it, yeah, china is now africa's largest tra trading partner and basically every country in africa has chinese presence and that's across the broad even in Europe, even in South America, Indo-Pacific. Um, so as China is trying to engage and trade and, and develop, um, take part in the development of the, in the developing world, um, what can China be really trusted as a reliable partner in the developing world? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Actually, wait, uh, yeah, I think I, well, for me personally, I am a huge proponent of the idea that at the end of the day, and diplomacy and kind of business partnerships is about people-to-people -people interaction. Um, you know, when I when I took a class about uh, China's role in Africa in college, uh, one of the things that my professor really talked about was 
you know, when a Chinese actor is making a deal with a Ugandan actor, for example, there is negotiation involved. There is a bidding process. Um, and so, you know, by, you know, with this issue, a lot of people talk about debt trap diplomacy, right? The, this narrative of uh, China kind of taking advantage of these poor developing nations and uh, charging them you know, really high interest rates and having them and putting them into debt for uh, these infrastructure projects. Um, I think this kind of narrative, it's not only harping on China, I think it's also very disempowering the other side as if the local companies or these uh, government agencies of developing countries don't know how to negotiate or do business. Right? If China just so happens to be bidding the lowest price or bidding the best long-term infrastructure project, and Western countries are losing out, then kind of whose who's fault is that? And so on the one hand, there's always risk involved in any type of project, right? A lot of this uh, kind of development projects is very new um, and mostly because in this actual model of using infrastructure as a way of developing a nation. You know, previously when kind of Western countries were more involved, development, was let's install a friendly government from the top while feeding a starving child for a dollar a day from the bottom uh, through this kind of charity uh, way of development. And so in China, having good sound infrastructures, instead how you get the kids to the schools that the charities built, you know, instead of giving them a new pair of shoes, it's how you get manufactured products to the markets and how you get people and goods moving safely and quickly across rough terrain. And so, you know, to build a highway, uh, it just takes time. You know, the BRI, for example, is only launched in 2013. It's only been 10 years. Um, highways aren't even built in that time. And it's not only that, you have to build the highway and then you have to wait another maybe like 10, 15 years to actually see the economic benefits of um, what that highway brought in terms of the local economy because people have to use it. And then the businesses that use it have to develop over time. And so right now, the kind of narrative of, oh, China is not trustworthy or reliable, um, I think it stems from the fact that we don't really have a whole lot of track record to go off of. Um, you know, China's projects and its development with uh, the developing world, I think, is still at a relatively early stage. You know, there are going to be successful projects that have already happened or unsuccessful projects. Um, but I think from a macro level, at least, the kind of judgment of China being unreliable partners, un unreliable partners probably a bit too early to be determined. Um, so that's on a macro level, right? But then at the end of the day, depending on um, which country um, you're talking about, you know, you may not always be uh, working on a state-to-state -state level in terms of development. Um, back to the kind of example of special economic zones in Rwanda and Ethiopia. In Ethiopia, there, were, there was a lot more state-to-state -state level diplomacy in addition to the company-to-company -company level. Um, and so the reaction to China's role there it might be different from Rwanda, where there was less state-to-state -state direct involvement in this kind of special economic zone and um, cooperative work, but more uh, people to people and uh, company to company. And so, you know, the question of, oh, can I trust this Chinese company to um, hold up their end of the deal uh, when it comes to this development project? I think the question should be, well, how do you determine uh, 
whether business partners are reliable, whether or not they are Chinese. Um, it could be with any rely with any nationality of a business partner. Um, and so with that, you know, there's a lot more agency involved than I think what the media portrays. Uh, when you're negotiating a deal, both sides do have the opportunity to kind of portray their interests. But I think what uh, Professor or what Ambassador Judith Nzambabaras uh, mentioned in your previous podcast is really true. You know, for example, um, she's mentioned that, you know, in these kind of deals, uh, Ugandan actors sh uh, should kind of promote their interests more uh, when they're negotiating. And so I think um, because of the way uh, how, like, because of how new these projects are and the new development model that's kind of going on, um, you know, we might still be in the kind of early stages and the learning process. This is the kind of the uh, early pain, the painful aspects of um, learning, right, and development process. Uh, my point is that, you know, we're still in the early stages of this kind of development model and these in these business relationships. And so, you know, there, there are going to be kind of unsuccesses, but I think if we can learn from them and do better the next time, then I think when it time, when the time comes for everyone to make a judgment on whether or not this initiative was successful or whether or not this project is successful, um, it's only then that we can really judge whether or not China can be trusted as a reliable partner. Okay. Um... Do you think the West is afraid of China's influence in the developing world? Are they scared? I think they are. <laughs> Otherwise, mm. you know, um, recently, actually, we, uh, the Georgetown Alumni Club in Hong Kong hosted Professor Dennis Wilder, who was, uh, or, or who is a professor at Georgetown, but he was previously uh, involved with the kind of uh, China desk, China department of uh, the United States government. And so, he was asked um, what about he was basically asked about uh, China's role in the developing world and the southern hemisphere and the global south right and so uh, he agreed that you know China is doing much better in global in the global south and kind of engaging these uh, uh, developing country partners than the United States has for example um, and so I think that ultimately, goes back to the different development models that both sides have you know the western countries are um a little bit more hesitant about uh you know doing these kind of infrastructure projects or taking this infrastructure approach that uh china has or at least historically they haven't done this kind of approach um and so all of a sudden you have this new player who's coming in uh you know helping people build bridges build uh, train stations, build highways. It's a very new model that they haven't experienced. And so all of a sudden it's a threat, right? All of a sudden China is making all these friends in the global South and they're out still trying to, you know, build up charities for these, these countries, um, which, you know, arguably has not led to long-term development. Um, and I'm not saying like charities is bad necessarily, uh, because I'm sure they do good work, but in terms of a long-term solution to economic development, that may not be the way to go. And so, um, yeah, I do think uh, the Western countries are concerned that 
you know, China's development model might actually be working. I think uh, Vice President Kamala Harris is about to visit or is visiting um, a couple African countries uh, in the coming weeks. Um, and so all of a sudden, the United States, for example, is trying to develop these new relationships with the developing countries. But I think in many ways, China has already gotten there first. Okay. Um, my last question to you would be, um, China is a member of various international uh, bodies. It has, it's a major member of the P5 of the United Nations, um, part of um, APEC, um, you know, various organizations. So how can China use its role in its in these various organizations to help the developing countries advocate for their causes? Yeah, I think, you know, China is... Um, quite involved in the UN. And in fact, I think they're one of the largest contributors to the UN peacekeeping force. And so uh, the first point I'll make is that, you know, China has and probably, and of course will uh, continue to be a part of the international institutions uh, of the world. But at the same time, these international institutions are, you know, most of them are in existence um, after World War II, right? And this was all built to many of the existing institutions that um, so, but at the same time, a lot of the uh, international institutions that exist today came about after World War II and it United States led international order. And so, of course, China wants to be part of that because that's already been existing. But at the same time, they're also trying to uh, build their own institutions, for example, with the Shanghai Cooperation Organization or just take matters into their own hands. So recently there was all that news about Saudi Arabia and Iran rapprochement to restore diplomatic relations, um, which was brokered by China. So um, either China is creating its own kind of institutions or even just uh, doing things uh, directly via bilateral or trilateral relations. And so you get this kind of emergence of two spheres. Right, the U.S.-led existing international order and all its allies who are probably in too deep and probably too stuck to say anything about it, and then China, who is trying to uh, build up this other model of international institutions and new relationships and new partnerships. And so we see this kind of ide ideological crack or this difference between the two spheres. Um, of course, there's always exceptions, blah, 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 blah. But, you know, I think China in that way has really taken up a leadership role. Um, and as with the issue of China's role in the developing world and the development projects, you know, I think we're still a little bit too early in history to make a final judgment that China shouldn't be this leader, right? Because right now China's track record is still very short. Um, you know, while the U.S.-led international order has been in existence since 1945, for example, and so um, I, I would say that having something new isn't necessarily bad uh, because at the end of the day, everyone acts, acts in their own interests, um, whether or not you go through uh, international institutions, right? Just because you have uh, United Nations gathering, um, trying to work together on global issues doesn't mean that each country isn't gonna have their own interests that they have to defend. Um, but along the way, you can still bring benefit to others, too. And I think China can and should maintain a strong stance 
but in a reasonable and negotiable way, right? Instead of escalating and kind of prompting military conflict, uh, I think China still has a lot to learn in the diplomatic sphere. Um, and the way that they react to crises in certain situations. Um, and so I really hope that our next generation can contribute to that. I really think that uh, China does have the capability and um, should take a leadership role in the world. Um, but whether or not those are either through the existing international institutions or through new ones that are being created, um, I think we're still going through that learning process right now. Okay. Um, thank you, Valerie, for coming. It's been an insightful conversation. I think I've learned a lot from your dynamic with China. Um, so thank you for honoring our invitation and coming. Well, thank you so much for having me today. Yes, I really enjoyed our conversation. It's very interesting. Um, definitely, uh, it's it's something that I'm very passionate about. Um academically so i'm really glad i got to share insights